Welcome to the Occult London Podcast. This is a podcast dedicated to exploring magic, mysticism, the Kabbalah, as well as other topics. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, please take a moment to leave us a review and rating on iTunes or whatever platform you tune in on. It really helps more folks find us and helps us to continue to get this message out there. Also, don't forget to check out our website, occultlondon.co.uk, to subscribe. And if you're feeling extra supportive, consider backing us on Patreon or you can find us on Buy Me A Coffee. Every little bit goes a long way in keeping this show alive and a heartfelt thanks to all of those who have already uh, donated. Um, it's much, much appreciated. Now let's dive into today's episode. In our last few episodes, we have discussed the circle of the magician and also the four quarters. However, in this episode, I wanted to dig a little bit deeper into some of the symbolism of the actual cardinal directions themselves and how one would work with them from a magical perspective, starting with the direction of the east. From the esoteric traditions of old to the religions of the modern day, the cardinal direction of the east has always held a significant and symbolic position. It's not merely a compass point, but really a deep well of meaning and symbolism that is important to understand in relation to magical practice. At the outset, when we observe a magical circle, um, it's often the case that the top of the circle would represent the cardinal direction of the east. And this association has profound implications, but also lots of deeper symbolism which I wanted to talk to you about today. The east is where the sun makes its first appearance every day, bathing the world in its healing magical light. And this daily phenomena isn't just a celestial event, but also a powerful metaphor for new beginnings. Every sunrise heralds a fresh start, introducing a new day with the promise of endless possibilities. And this beginning resonates deeply with an air of freshness that permeates our landscape and also connects seamlessly with the element of air, which is the elemental correspondence most commonly associated with the East. And if we think about this, it makes a lot of sense. The air element is not just about the atmosphere, but also embodies the psychic qualities of clarity and also life itself in our breath. And this connection of the East with new things and beginnings is also relevant in the context of its connection with the soul in many cultures, especially in the Western magical tradition. So we have examples of words such as ruach, which is Hebrew for spirit, breath or wind, psyche, which is Latin, derived from the Greek word meaning breath, life or soul, and also pneuma, which is Greek meaning breath, soul or spirit. The breath of life is the beginning of life and whence all emanates, and it is this breath that not only brings life but also airs out problems and aligns us with the concepts of the fresh wind which rejuvenates um, our lives and also you know, stagnant situations. Also across cultures and eras, the direction of the east um, and its universal orientation tends to be paramount, um, particularly within the religious contexts. So in the ancient druidical stone circles to contemporary cathedrals, many of these structures are dedicated to the divine to face the east and really saw it as being a tribute to the worship of light and its solar source. 
and this directional emphasis isn't solely because of the physical sun, but also due to the East's symbolic representation of renewal, inspiration and knowledge. The cardinal direction of the East held profound significance in ancient Egyptian religion and magical practice. Symbolically, the East represented the realm of rebirth, renewal and creation, as it was from this direction that the sun emerged daily, reinforcing themes of resurrection and cyclicity in the Egyptian cosmological view. Every morning the sun god Ra was believed to be reborn in the east, traversing the sky during the day and descending into the underworld at sunset in the west. And this continuous cycle of death and rebirth mirrored the Egyptians' beliefs about the afterlife and the human soul journey. In magical practices also, spells and rituals often harness the power of the East to invoke protection, rejuvenation and healing. Temples, tombs and other sacred structures were frequently orientated with respect to the cardinal directions, emphasising the East's significance. Consequently, the East played a really strong role in you know, the core tenets of the ancient Egyptian spiritual and magical traditions. Also, moving across to ancient Greece, in ancient Greece, with their rich pantheon, um, had specific terminologies and deities associated with the East. So Anatoly signified the sunrise, while Euros and Aleotos denoted the northeast and southeast, respectively. And the eastern wind was also known as the children of the morning. And Greek poets and thinkers from Hesiod to Aristotle all ascribed specific characteristics and importance to the east and in that direction. Aristotle even called the east Apeliotes, meaning from the sun, which again demonstrates its connection to the rising sun. And it was also seen as a source of good and even as an area from which all the winds hailed pointing to obviously the East's elemental ties with air but also pointing to the East's ties with being this kind of creator or source of all things. We see references to the East and the wind in numerous prayers for example fragment 858 from the Strasbourg, Strasbourg Papyrus describes it as send a breeze over the fields soft wind Euros Euros, saver of Sparta, may you come with victory at all times. Yopan, Eopan. We also see references to the eastern wind in the Orphic hymns. Um, and there's a, there's a modern Orphic hymn to Euros, the eastern wind, which kind of captures some of that um, particular practice. I couldn't actually find an original one um, for this particular wind, but there are original ones for the others so I imagine there probably was one that existed just haven't been able to dig it out and this goes tempestuous eastern gale scion of comely dawn ever tossing the whirling seas in frightful waves hailing from light giving regions let dreadful and terrible showering land and sea with rains unceasing be thou merciful unto us and abate thy fury gracing us with gentle breezes from thy lofty realm also within Christianity, the cardinal direction of the East has also been very important and there are many references to it being the birthplace of light. And we see this in numerous examples. For example, from Ezekiel, 
Then he brought me to the door of the gate of the Lord's house, which was towards the east. Also Matthew 24:27. For as the lightning cometh out of the east, and shineth even unto the west, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. So the east was seen in Christian tradition as being a symbol of Christ as light of the world. And it's also the place where the wise men came from the east seeking the Christ child. So for example, we read in Matthew 2.1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, the king Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw, saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. In Christianity, the direction of, all, of the east is also seen as the direction of the second coming, where the Messiah was meant to come from the east towards Jerusalem. And somebody arriving from the east was also considered to be a good omen and a blessing. And this is also why churches were traditionally constructed with the altar facing eastward, a practice stemming from the belief that Christ's second coming would be from the east. Uh, in the Bible, Ezekiel, it says, And behold, the glory of the God of Israel came from the way of the east. The sunrise was also associated with the resurrection, as it's written in the Gospels, that um, Christ rose from the dead at dawn. And the east was also connected to paradise and heaven, as God planted a garden in Eden, in the east and there he put the man whom he had formed that's from genesis christians for many centuries have also prayed facing east known as ad orientem both for the eucharist liturgy and also different daily prayers and even cemeteries were often orientated in such a way that those buried were facing east ready to meet christ when he came again if we move to other religions Within Buddhism and Hinduism, the East is also represents spiritual illumination and light. For it, um, for example, it's been said that the term enlightenment itself has Eastern origins, most notably associated with Buddhism, and obviously the Buddha being described as the enlightened one. And also the Buddha has meant to have said the following, Thousands of candles can be lighted from a single candle, and the life of the candle will not be shortened. Happiness never decreases by being shared. In Buddhism, the direction of the East is also thought to house contentment, and the Eastern realm is known as without distress. And the Buddha is also meant to have uh, entitled it the virtue of goodness, and many monasteries, monks will also face the East to chant morning prayers or sutras, the honour the sun as it rises each morning and to express reverence for the forms in which the Buddha appears. Also in Himalayan um, artistic renderings, the east is known as the realm of Dhiratarashatra, apologies if I'm pronouncing that wrong, who is a guardian who watches over the east and also kind of watches over mus musicians that create the music of the spheres. And Dhiratarashatra makes a vow to the Buddha to be the protector of this region of heaven and earth and is still very popular, uh, particularly amongst musicians. The East was also important in Native American traditions and was thought to be the direction of the spirit 
Nine Funusan Redemption, and it carried this energy of vision and the gift of prophecy, working cooperatively with the air element and connecting the earth plane to the etheric realms and above. And shamans are meant to have looked to the east and air as being a part of vision quests and dream journeys, and an energy that really kept emotions and health balanced. And there's a prayer to the four directions from the Lakota tribe that goes as follows. As the day begins with the rising sun, I ask, spirit keeper of the east, brother eagle, be with me. Fly high as you carry my prayers to the creator. May I have eyes as sharp as yours, so I am able to see truth and hope on the path I have chosen. Guide my step and give me courage to walk the circle of my life with honesty and dignity. And that's a four directions prayer from the Kota. So from a cultural point of view, um, we can see that the East and the symbolism of the East holds quite consistent meanings across different cultures. But what is its significance in the realm of magic? Well, much like the cultural interpretations in the magical realm, the East is very much emblematic of new beginnings and usually obviously corresponds with the element of air and the intellect. So we get symbols like incense representing the element of air, the first quarter of the moon, and notably the eagle. All of these kind of encapsulate this multifaceted essence of the East. The eagle in particular is a very powerful symbol and embodies this um, connotations of elevated wisdom and foresight. Um, and when we think about the eagle as representing the East, we also think about it from the point of view of great wisdom and vision. If you think about the idea of the eagle looking down from a great height, it's this clarity of thought and being able to see things clearly. The eagle serves as a messenger from the from the beyond, the numinous bearing visions, and bird feathers, which have been revered in many cultures, often accompany prayers and ceremonies where we are focusing on the east, but also must be remembered are significant of truthfulness and rightness of thought and intellect. So if you think about the ancient Egyptian tradition with the feather of Mart that was there to signify the idea of truth. So again, you've got this idea of intellect, truth, clarity. Also in the pagan and Wiccan traditions, the East often stands for thought, education, communication and creativity. And these facets are often symbolised by the magical weapon of the East, which is usually a sword, although some traditions um, use a wand instead. The wand in that context really symbolises the East as being the origin and conduit of energy, either in the role of the magus or the high priestess. Also, the sword underscores the intellectual attributes of this direction, which is also reflected in the tarot suit of the swords, which is also attributed to the elements of air and the East. 
If we move into the Kabbalistic and Hermetic tradition, the East is also important. And within this tradition, the Hebrew word for East is Quedem, which carries the meaning of rising sun. And I think that portrays a lot of themes about what we've been talking about. Interestingly, from a Kabbalistic perspective, the Quedem from a Gematria perspective adds up to 704 or 144 which are also the numbers of the words before and ancient things, which again connects with this idea that the East is where all things originate and also its possible connections with the Garden of Eden that we mentioned previously. In practical Kabbalistic rituals and ceremonies, the East also occupies a unique um, position because it serves as the sacred space where the magus of the lodge or the high priest of the lodge stands and almost acts as a conduit for the spiritual energies and the, the eastern quarter also harmoniously resonates with the sphere of tiferet which is often described as representing harmony or beauty but it can also in some ways be seen as um, keta or the source of things this kind of idea of the source of light. This idea of spiritual light being born in the East is illustrated well by Gareth Knight in his practical guide to Kabbalistic symbolism when he writes the following. The East has always been regarded as the source of holiness. It is the point where the light of the sun first appears after the long hours of night, just as the spiritual light dawns in the darkness of unilluminated consciousness. The East also holds a position of paramount importance within the rituals and symbolism of Freemasonry as being a beacon of enlightenment. And in this system, Masons will orientate themselves towards the East where the Worshipful Master sits during ceremonies and gatherings. And this act really carries profound symbolism signifying the pursuit of spiritual illumination. And in the system of Freemasonry, the East is often seen as the wellspring of light, metaphorically representing an awakening to a spiritual world. And within this context, the Masonic brother who seeks more light, which is often a theme of, of some of the, um, the initiatory rituals, the initiate will embark on a symbolic journey towards the East. And this pilgrimage symbolises a deep yearning for greater awareness and also a heartfelt quest for the light that is not the only source of physical life but the illumination of the soul and the heart and welling up of the source of all wisdom. As we heard about in our episode on the circle each of the quarters is also inhabited by elemental beings and these are really enigmatic beings that embody the essence of their corresponding elements. And while these entities possess you know, different symbolic meanings, they can really collectively be perceived as psychic facets of the elemental forces that shape the cosmos. So really sort of like building blocks almost. In the Eastern Quarter, these entities take the form of beings known as sylphs, which are often portrayed with elfin features um, almost a bit like sort of Lord, of Lord of the Rings style elf characters 
and they're described by Le Comte de Gabelais de Villers in 1670 as follows. The air is full of an innumerable multitude of peoples whose faces are human, seemingly rather haughty, yet in reality tractable, great lovers of the sciences, cunning, obliging to the sages, and enemies of fools and the ignorant. Although the origin of the name Sylphs is uncertain, many scholars have suggested that it comes to us from Paracelsus, who also referred to them as the Nenufarini, with the word Sylph probably derived from the word Sylvan or Sylvain, which referred to an airy forest spirit. And Paracelsus described them as being, the Sylvans are closest to us, for they are supported by our air. Also, this idea of beings being part of our air and very close to humans, because we obviously live, you know, we survive on air. Breath is like the most essential thing that keeps us alive. And this is also supported by the German magician Trithemius in his Eight Questions when he wrote the following. The spirits of the air can descend to the earth and by assuming a body of densified air can make themselves visible to men on many occasions. The sylphs were also described by the 19th century American anthropologist Charles Leyland who described them as follows. How shall I describe ye, O beautiful sylphs, bright dwellers in the aerial elements? How can I tell the unutterable longing, the deep yearning with which my heart inclines to your celestial company? Although we don't know the origin of the sylphs, one possible source is the Old Testament, where there are numerous references to the winds being angels, such as in the Psalms, where it says, Who taketh his angels winds, his minister a flaming fire. And this idea of a winged human-like figure ruling the air is also supported by Lewis Spence in his Encyclopedia of Occultism when he wrote the following, It is probable that the lesser angels of the older magicians were the sylphs of Paracelsus. We also see the idea of the sylphs as being this really important part of nature um, in the Gospel of Luke when the boat in which Jesus is crossing a lake is in danger of sinking and Jesus speaks to the elementals of the air saying and they came to him and awoke him saying master master we perish then he arose and rebuked the wind and the raging of the water and they ceased and there was calm so we get this idea of um, Jesus being this kind of master magician who has control over these elemental forces. Going back to Paracelsus briefly, um, he's an interesting character. His real name was Philippus Aureolus Theophrastus Bombastus von Hohenheim, which is a bit of a mouthful. And he was a Swiss Swiss physician, alchemist and astrologer and he is known for really kind of challenging the traditional views of medicine at the time and particularly his work within the realm of chemistry and medicine. In addition to quite a few scientific contributions, 
Paracelsus wrote about mythical creatures and elemental spirits, which he grouped into four main categories. Gnomes, the earth elementals, undines, which are the water elementals, sylph, the air elementals, and salamanders, the fire elementals. And he wrote about these, these as follows. Their abode is of four kinds, namely according to the four elements. One in the water, one in the air, one in the earth, one in the fire. Those in the water nymphs, those in the air sylphs, those in the earth are pygmies, and those in the fire salamanders. With regards to the sylphs, he, or the elementals of air, he describes them as being the lightest and most ethereal of the elementals, living primarily amongst the clouds or in mountaintop regions. And Paracelsus also believed that they were closest to humans in behaviour than the other elementals, and even you know suggested that they may have had souls as well. Um, although you'll see lots of depictions of these beings in humanoid form um one thing it's it's important to kind of remember is um and certainly from my opinion anyway is we should see these elemental forces as being building blocks of each element um so almost like intricate and self-replicating patterns within the realm of elemental forces so although we may see them in a particular form, so it could be like an elfin Tolkien-like character, um, their actual genuine form is is, gonna, is very, very different um, from that. As W.E. Butler um, wrote, Elementals may be considered as natural forces in movement that do not have access to free will. What differentiates elementals from other forces is that elementals are forces of consciousness and are not mechanical. The elementals, such as the sylphs, may be viewed as being the smallest building blocks of an element. The sylphs are the building blocks of air. Imagine that you have a cloud of sylphs gathered together. All those little building blocks are ruled and directed by the sum of the whole. They coalesce to form one organism, becoming the elemental king of that element so it's this idea that all of the elementals come together to kind of create this king and that's what we're going to talk about next and the elemental ruler of the east is Peralda uh, the king of the elementals of air and as the embodiment of air Peralda stands really as a formidable figure presiding over the domain of the east with grace and authority and He's normally, like I said before, often visualised as being, you know, looking a bit like one of the Tolkien's kind of high elves, tall and fair, fair of face. And his presence infuses the eastern quarter with this essence of air and also orchestrates this harmonious dance of sylphs that reside within his kingdom. So we've covered the elementals so we now move beyond them um, to the higher echelons of energies of the east with the angelic order of the malachim and also the archangel of the quarter and the archangel of each elemental quarter carries a lot of cosmic power on a scale that you know really kind of defies mortal comprehension 
and can be seen as living embodiments really of the sum total of psychic energies within a particular element or an aspect of divinity. Some traditions obviously don't use um, archangels you know with regards to specific quarters um, so this may not be relevant but talking about the tradition that I follow I normally put Raphael uh, the archangel Raphael in the east and then um, Mikael in the south. Personally I like Raphael in the east because we've seen the east is symbolic of the elements of air, the dawn, new beginnings but also healing and Raphael's name translates to God heals. He's also one of the seven archangels who's, who's meant to stand before God from the book of Enoch which really resonates with the idea of the east as a place of renewal and healing and in some Christian depictions Raphael is also shown carrying a staff and a fish which again is symbols of his healing power and his role in the story of Tobit. While he's not directly links, linked to the east this kind of imagery really emphasizes his role as being this guide and a healer which is similar to the guidance one might seek from the rising sun and you think about it we we always kind of have plans to you know sleep on a problem and you know the solution will appear the next day when you wake up so it's a similar kind of idea the sun brings new life new inspiration new clarity on problems and things like that in our lives So we've also looked at the elements, uh, elemental attributions of the East, the angelic and the archangelic. But now we come to the highest aspect of the Eastern elemental quarter, the spiritual element of it. And in the Western mystery tradition, this is often represented by the sacred figures of the four holy living creatures or the Chaos HaKwadesh from the book of Revelation and the book of Ezekiel which when we pair them with the elemental quarters of east, south, west and north represent the highest spiritual aspects of each element and are attributed to the divine emanations of Keta, the highest Sephiroth obviously on the tree of life. And these celestial beings bear resemblance to the four evangelists in the Bible but also take on the forms of the winged human, the winged lion, the eagle and the winged bull. And they are described as follows, and Ezekiel 1.10 states, As for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face. The four had the face of a lion on the right side, the four had the face of an ox on the left side, and the four had the face of an eagle. Also, Revelation mentions, The first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like a calf, the third living creature had the face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. They also described by one author from the point of view of being this kind of highest, uh, highest kind of connectional symbol that you could connect with with a specific element as follows. The four holy living creatures are capable of living in pure holiness on the highest level of the creator. They are connected with the constellation Taurus, Leo, Scorpio and Aquarius. They represent this energy from the moment of creation. So it's this idea of this is the really kind of highest power that you can connect with from that point of view. With regards to the 
eastern quarter, the symbol that's often used in sort of Kabbalistic traditions is the symbol of the winged man. And this can really be seen from the context of the elements of the air to really embody the pinnacle of intellectual and spiritual enlightenment. The man, angel, symbolising this harmonisation of human intellect with divine wisdom, but also humanity in its perfected form, a transformation towards divinity. As the east is the realm of sunrise, representing beginnings and illumination, it coincides really with the the man-angel's portrayal of enlightenment and the dawn of knowledge and awakening. And therefore the winged human can also be seen to represent transcendence of human consciousness nurtured by divine breath and also the subtleties of heavenly winds guiding our souls towards spiritual clarity and understanding. To finish this episode, I think we can kind of summarise by saying you know, the, the cardinal direction of the wind with its profound and multifaceted aspects really stands as an enduring beacon of light, wisdom and rebirth. Across ages and civilizations, its symbolic significance has permeated collective consciousness, acting as a constant reminder of the cyclic nature of existence and the promise of renewal that every dawn brings. Just as the sun makes its first appearance on the horizon, signalling the dispelling of darkness and the birth of a fresh day, so too does the essence of the East remind us that in every fleeting moment there lies a golden opportunity for enlightenment and discovery. That's all we have time for in today's episode. Um, next week we will be continuing this discussion with a look at the Cardinal Quarter of the South. I wanted to finish with a hymn to Artin from ancient Egypt, which kind of captures this idea of the light of the sun returning. This is the great hymn to Artin. Splendid you rise in the light land of the sky, O living Artan, creator of life. You have dawned in the eastern light land, you fill every land with your beauty. You are beauteous, mighty and radiant, risen high over every land. Your rays embrace the lands to the limit of all that you made. Being Ra, you reach their ends. You bend them for your beloved sun. Though you are far, your rays are on earth. Though seen by them, your course is unknown. When you set in the western light land, earth is in darkness as if death. The sleepers are in their chambers, heads covered, no eyes seeing the other. One could steal their goods from under their heads, they would not notice it. Every lion comes from its den, the serpents bite, darkness hovers, earth is silent, for its creator rests in the light land. At dawn you have risen in the light land to shine as the artan of daytime. You dispel the dark and cast your rays, 
the two lands celebrate daily. Awake they stand on their feet. You have made them get up. They wash and dress, their arms raised, in adoration to your appearance. The entire land sets out to work, all cattle are satisfied with their fodder. The trees and the grass become green. Birds fly from their nests, their wings praising your car. All game animals frisk on their hooves, all that fly and flutter. Live when you dawn for them. Ships fare downstream and back upstream. Roads lie open when you rise. The fish in the river darts before you.